This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew, and the face that you've been making lately before you wind up to start saying the name of the podcast does make it look like you're inviting like an angel to yeah. inhabit your body. <laughs> uh-huh. Who could is there a Greek which is which is the Greek god of writing? Can you look that up real quick? I'm inviting uh, or do you just know like Jerry? Homer? Um, god of writing oh mu thoth thoth that's egyptian okay (laughs) i was gonna say google did a bad google did a bad job sing to me oh muse about a complicated podcaster Mm -hmm. enter into me so that i might record this show which Mm -hmm. is about books yeah. Um, each week on the show, one of us reads one of them and tells the other person about it. And uh, then we get out on the other side and maybe we've learned some stuff. As we've discovered when we've read other books, it is just best to assume that the Greek gods are all surrounding us at all times and testing us to, to make sure that we're meeting up to their expectations. So, yeah, whichever Greek god is into you, just it's it's best if you just pretend there's one like looking over your shoulder right now and all the time. Always. I mean, I, mean, I hope they listen to our podcast. That'd be nice. They've, I mean, they seem like they have time on their hands. Yeah, that's true. I buy that. Uh, we're going to talk about a book this week. I read a novel by Virginia Woolf called Mrs. Dalloway. We have talked about virginia wolf before what books have we read by virginia wolf before andrew uh well we read um uh uh do we read orlando wait you read orlando i read orlando that sounds about right and uh to the lighthouse and Uh were there any other ones no we talked about her and the reason that we're doing this episode is yeah the hours episode yeah uh i read the hours a few months ago which was based on mrs dalloway and on air you basically dared me to read this book that's the best way to get somebody to do something is to to get them to begrudgingly agree to it in like a high pressure public situation i've had a lot of success with that method in my life and what's interesting is that i could have stopped the show and edited the part where you dared me out of it you could have you know you had that edit and then you didn't do it i think this is how we got you to read lord of the rings too it just kind of happens like this yeah yeah um well here we are (laughs) what do you so what do you want to remember we should remember some things about virginia wolf just in case someone is like just coming to the show just discovering Virginia Woolf. Okay, so yeah. Virginia Woolf is an English author. I uh, was born in 1882 and died in in 1941. 
Um, she is a fixture in the literary canon for many reasons, including her work and her sexuality and her history of, of mental illness and, yeah. and what her works have to say on, on, on those topics. Um, she was a what she's a modernist yeah like yes, that's the I was, school of literature that she yep. is she is part of and what you need to know about modernists is that they're modern it's the whole oh movement my was about like self-consciously avoiding like recreating previous kinds of art like you're you're trying to do something new and you are doing that on purpose instead of just like kind of doing it as an evolution, like a clear evolution from a previous thing. It's more like in opposition to, or in response to the previous thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think and that comes out and that comes out of world war one yeah. being so unprecedentedly traumatic and horrible that nobody knew how to process any of it. Yeah. That's the, that's the shortest <laughs> answer on that one. Yeah. Um, it's not like, that's not, I'm not going to pretend that's comprehensive, but that's part of like, I went back and listened to, um, the Orlando, the intro to the Orlando episode and then the intro to, um, the hours episode. And that's my like summary of the summary of the definition sure. of what modernism we, this is. This is a very modernist episode that we're doing right here. Or is it postmodern? Who knows anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, there was, and she also was, was she, she's also pretty well known for like a stream of consciousness sort of writing style, which I yeah. think Mrs. Dalloway traffics in a lot as the account of, one day in the life of one woman who is like planning a party. <laughs> yes. This is her like third novel or no, her fourth novel. Excuse me. Um, I had my bullet points wrong because it was like, wow. Voyage, yeah, sorry. Her voyage out was the first one. Night and day. Jacob's room. This one is 1925. Um, and so the other novels that we've covered are still to come. Uh, Lighthouse is next. I think and Orlando f- is after that. Uh, and I think a lot of folks point to this. As the like, oh, this is what she would be known for. Like, I have not heard of those other three novels I just said prior to Mrs. Dalloway, except mm-hmm. for every time I've mentioned them on this show. Like the other <laughs> Virginia Woolf books I've heard of, there's like they resonate out. And and someone who's a listener and is a fan of Wolf should write in and tell me which one of those I'll read at some point. But yeah. Um, this book came from two short stories that she had worked on previously. And I think, I don't know if the if Mrs. Dalloway in Bond Street had been published. I think it had been published prior to this novel being written. Um, and the opening line is different. So this book is famous for its first sentence. Uh, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. That's the huh. beginning of the day. Okay. Um, and apparently in the short story, it was said <laughs> okay, she would buy okay. the gloves herself. I'm left sort of nonplussed, I guess. What kind of questions do you have about I, the flat about the flowers and the misses and the herself? I mean, I, I guess you, I guess you pick up a lot. Well, hmm, I don't even know if you pick up a lot about Mrs. Dalloway from that. I guess I am left assuming that it is, having someone else buy the flowers would be an option so yeah, what uh-huh. she 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 i guess she has help probably like she's a woman of help. means yeah uh she's married and that, and that these flowers are significant enough to her or whatever she's doing in some way that she's chosen to to do it herself instead of delegating yeah or else she just has problems delegating in the first place which also listen, I, I get it 
Uh huh. See, we're learning a lot just with a few words. If by learning you mean kind of pulling stuff out of our butts, then yes, I'm no, I'm learning. We're I'm pull- learning all the time. <laughs> we're pulling stuff out of the text. This is what a close read. We don't do a lot of close reads on the show mm-hmm. where we just pick apart ten words at a time or so. That's kind of how we do our bonus, like yeah. our Don Quixote thing. That's true. One That's of our true. friends, when hearing that we were still reading Don Quixote, said, "Are you still reading Don Quixote to us?" Yeah. So that's you know, um, you you'd asked me to find interviews with Wolf about this book. I didn't really find anything on a on a quick search, but yeah. I did find an interview uh, with a a professor and critic named Merv Umre who uh, edited and annotated a collection of Wolf's work and was talking about. Uh, Mrs. Dalloway in particular, and and she says, quote, it hits that sweet spot in her career, the middle period of her novels, and with it a much more deliberate and purposeful understanding of her own craft, which you see in the diaries and drafts. Uh, My approach is that the annotator is a kind of companion along with the author, a friendly voice or an occasionally critical or combative, combative voice. I transcribed the entire manuscript myself, and I'd never been that close to a text before. In doing this, I realized just how political a novel Mrs. Dalloway is. Many of my students ask, why should we care about an old posh woman throwing a party? But when you read it, you realize how concerned she is with British imperialism and how bitingly satirical it is. It's about an entire society coming out of lockdown and mass death and how to grieve without compensation. Huh. That's a great quote. (laughs) Yeah. So... There's I I don't I I can't always count on one of us having a smart thing to say so we can like outsource that to somebody else. Yeah. There's sure. somebody smart saying something smart about Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, there's a uh there's a letter that Wolf had written um where I was reminded of this also. Thing was speaking of smart things to say, right? I love um, saying smart stuff. But we don't always get I'm to. I'm so bad you. at it, but it's fun to do when you get there. Um, Maureen Howard wrote the foreword to the edition that I read um, and talks a lot about this work being this modernist work that is responding to the war, that's responding to other mo- modernist work like Ulysses by James Joyce, um, responding to Proust. God, we're going to have to read Proust one day. We haven't. I mean, it's been almost 500 episodes and we've avoided it so far. So, okay. (laughs) Let's keep just like neo dodging those bullets. (laughs) Um, And there's some stuff in there about this the political nature of the text, of um, the sense of time. Talks a lot about how we we brushed over this today, but um, Wolf was also a pretty respected like literary critic. And mm-hmm. published a lot of different essays on on fiction and nonfiction alike. I think she also and, had a lot of like private stuff that she yeah, wrote. Yeah, a lot like, of letters. There, there's some speculation that um, Mrs. Dalloway is like a response to or like in some kind of conversation with James Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah. And Wolf is she has a lot of bad stuff to say about Ulysses, but in only her, in public, but only in o- private. Excuse only me, only private. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. So she was apparently working on an essay about Euripides while she was writing this book. And there's some stuff about the the unity of time, like the whole book taking place in one day, being kind of set within this one location with these characters that does feel very like Greek, Aristotle, poetics kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you said that thing earlier, Andrew, about like, 
never this was a smart thing you said about nev modernists not wanting to write the same story twice or the same type of book twice uh-huh um and wolf said in a letter about the curse of writing modernist novels, I have to create the whole thing afresh for myself each time. Probably all writers now are in the same boat. It is the penalty we pay for breaking with tradition, and the solitude makes the writing more exciting, though the being read less so. One ought to sink to the bottom of the sea, probably, and live alone with one's words, which is an auspicious or an inauspicious end to that quote. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, the sense that you you can't just write a bunch of novels like this and have them be part of a series. <laughs> like they're it wouldn't you couldn't just have a whole series of Mrs. Dalloway novels that function this way, which is interesting. I think Mrs. Dalloway showed up in a number of short stories by Wolf uh, after this book was published, but mm-hmm. um no, this is not like you don't this isn't the 7th in a romance series. This is not genre fiction, you know. <laughs> Um, all right. So I've told you about the opening of this book, Andrew. And I'm glad that you did. Okay. Um, I'm going to do the plot as it were because <laughs> there's, I didn't know when to bring this up, but you like struggling to decide whether you think the plot, the, the book has a plot or not. Yeah, uh, reminds me of this uh, Lit Hub article that I found called "The Thirty Six Best One Star Amazon Reviews of Mrs. Dalloway." No, <laughs> and it's a lot of it's it, this article is a joy to read because there are a lot of people being critical of the book and not having a plot, and then there are like one or two like Virginia Wolf reply guys who are popping up in all these negative reviews to talk. There's one guy named D's D E Z. Yeah. That's in D's nuts. Uh huh. Who keeps popping up to tell people how wrong they are when they don't like Mrs. Dalloway. But anyway, my favorite of these, uh, referred to Mrs. Dalloway as quote, as bad as Faulkner. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just for being very, wordy and and verbose and all kind of just like coming at you and being sort of vague and and shapeless. And so, so yeah, when we talk about the plot of the book, understand that that is not widely understood to be the point of the book or like why you read the book. No. So let's talk about the plot and I'm sure it won't take long is what I'm saying. Yeah. Clarissa is going to buy some flowers for a high society party that she's throwing. She's going to go and explain it all to somebody. And then a man comes in through her window. There is a a, a window to feature in this book. I wonder if Clarissa explains it all got her name from Clarissa Dalloway. That's interesting. Maybe. Or it's not interesting because it's not true. We'll never know. No one look mm-hmm. it up ever. Um, Clarissa Dalloway is buying her own flowers. She's walking down Bond Street in London, and she's looking in book win- she's like bookshop windows, and she's picking out some flowers. She bumps into this guy named Hugh Whitbread. Yes, Hugh <laughs> Whitbread. <laughs> Hugh Whitbread. Yeah, he kind of stinks. Um, <laughs> he's just he's just like a pompous, obnoxious dude. Most of the guys in this book stink uh, for various. Most a lot of people in this book stink. But anyway, um, and like while she's out on the street, noises happen. A car okay. backfires. A plane mm-hmm. flies overhead in the sky, and these events are ways in which Wolf will like 
kind of shift the camera away from Dalloway for a second, give us a little bit of somebody else, some other person in London responding and, and noticing the sounds. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple, some of these characters come back. Many of them do not. They're just people living in the world, having thoughts about things. Um, primarily when the car backfires, it's who's in that car? <laughs> what uh-huh. celebrity is in that car? Is it the queen? Um what? There, there's a sense of like. Why would you assume it would be a celebrity whose car? It's was a very, backfiring? it's a very fancy car. I see. It's also okay. the 1920s, so, so like cars. Yeah, backfire. so all cars are kind of crappy. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an aeroplane in the sky, and it's spelling something in the air. Surrender, Dorothy. <laughs> it, it's people don't know if it's spelling like one person thinks it's spelling cremo. Uh, one person thinks. They're pretty sure it's spelling toffee. It's it might be an ad. It's unclear what it is. Um, okay. And again, it's mostly different people but are you, reacting. You're, you're getting all these details, though, all thrown at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mrs. Dalloway is like in and out of this part of the book. She has met Hugh. She's bumped into one or two other people. She has looked in some shop windows. Um, the big thing for her in the first part of this novel is that her former love, Peter Walsh, Peter Walsh, Peter Welsh, I think it's Peter Walsh, um, Peter something. he is back in town. He has spent the some boy time is back in town away in India mm-hmm. and he is, as he tells us later in the novel, he is here to like i think kind of deal with some marital divorce paperwork uh is this the point i'm I'm sorry to keep interrupting is Uh is that the point when india is still a subject of the crown that that is right it is i made a note of that because you know so that post i think the that starts coming apart in 1947 Mm -hmm. i think is when that's when india gets independent something like that Mm -hmm. um so here we're we are post world war one so there's a lot in this book where these like upper crust people have thoughts about england most of them are good thought most of them are good thoughts Mm -hmm. or at least even if they have quibbles and qualms with what is specifically happening in England, they're like they're well, still but, feeling very like protective and like yeah. rally around the flag about it. Okay, yes. got it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, and yeah, we're twenty years from decolonization. We are of the empire. We are now coming out of World War One. Um, it's been revealed that Britain is no longer like the biggest military power in the Western world. Like there are reasons to not think that you are the best people on earth, mm-hmm. um, and some of these people think that they are. Um, so that that's like some of the underpinning. I certainly came into this book not expecting it to be political. I had not done that. Like the research coming in, I knew about it being a woman's day, buying flowers, mm-hmm. and stream of consciousness like inner monologue inner turmoil stuff i was not expecting the commentary on british class stuff that i probably should have expected knowing when it was written sure but still i i didn't know 
You're going to get on Virginia Woolf's Twitter and tell her, like, stick to gay kissing. Stop stop doing all this political stuff. Can you you imagine telling telling someone to stick to gay kissing? (laughs) I don't even think there is. There is. We specifically talked about how little kissing there was in Virginia Woolf's, like, entire body of work. I mean, there is a kiss. There is a... Kiss between two women in this novel. It's very notable. Yeah. Um, but you're but right. I was just, I'm just making a funny joke, though. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm doing. Uh, the thing with her and Peter is that she had rejected his proposal years ago um, and married Richard Dalloway instead. He's work. I think he's in Parliament. He works for the conservative government. There's a lot. Somebody calls him like a, has, that he has a second-rate brain, which is why he'll never be in the cabinet. <laughs> but he seems to be f- competent and fine. Um, it's Peter's opinion that he's kind of boring and and has uh, rendered Clarissa a like less interesting version of herself than she could have become. Sure. Um, worth noting that most of these folks are in their fifties or sixties. It is a very middle-aged book from these perspectives, and I think that's important. Does that cover Clarissa, too? Yes. Mm -hmm. She's 52, I think, unless I'm misremembering. But um, there is this sense that, like, we made it through World War One, or they we made it through the war. <laughs> they didn't know that we made this. it through the only <laughs> world war that there will ever be, God. the Great War. Um, and we, our generation, you know, we were not necessarily the ones in the trenches, but like the world is, we're part of this big changing world, and most of us have the most of our potential to change behind us. So now we're gonna on this day where Clarissa's having a party, we're gonna have a lot of feelings about how most of us have changed and not in the ways that we expected to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene between Peter and Clarissa that happens a little ways in the book uh, gets really close to them expressing feelings for each other. It's a lot of internal monologues about their feelings for each other, <laughs> um, and it. He cries. She kisses him briefly. They have more internal thoughts and feelings. And then just as he's about to ask her if her husband makes her happy, uh, Clarissa's daughter Elizabeth comes in and Peter runs away. And she goes, remember my party later? And uh, invites him (laughs) in a panic to her party, which she had not planned to do. This is the setup to a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> oh, no. God, I hope not. <laughs> um, the other major character in the novel um, is this guy named Septimus Smith. Mm-hmm. He is like 30-ish. Uh, he is a veteran of World War I, um, and he suffers from PTSD in the book. And in this era, it was just kind of blanketly referred to as shell shock. Uh, and so folks who might come to a wolf novel expecting some investigation of mental illness or at least some stuff that might resonate with what we know about wolf and, and her life like this mm-hmm. is where you find it in Septimus sure. um, I believe this is alluded to not just alluded to I think this is depicted in the hours um, there was orig- originally the draft of the story uh, Clarissa Dalloway 
dies by suicide at the end of the book, Septimus um, coming into this was like later invented as she was working on the novel. Um, And he does by the end of the book die by suicide. And his, the beginning of his story is that he has attempted it and his wife is seeking treatment for him. Um, And he, I don't know. His story is very sad. Um, he suffers from a lot of like hallucinations and shell, shell shock is one of the things. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's all anybody calls it in the yeah, book. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. that 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 is the term that is used to encompass a wide variety of like PTSD and other related things that we understand slightly better now. But yeah, yeah that that was that was the phrase that kept coming up while I was uh, reading stuff about the book mm-hmm. was shell shock. And he has married a young woman from Italy, this woman, Lucretia, um, and, or Lucrezia, I think. It's, there's a Z in there. Um, and she wants to have kids. Or And I, I'm telling you things that are like, we discover them in their heads as they're working through their problems. And Well, thinking, I'm sure a lot of this stuff is happening. Like, you are putting it in order for me because that is how a conversation about a book has to happen yeah. but maybe you're not getting all of this all right in a row all neatly lined up like no this necessarily yeah. no uh, like you get a couple snippets of the two of them earlier in the book when the characters from Dalloway's plot will like wander by them in the street and go those young people look sad they <laughs> like they have a whole lifetime of married sadness ahead of them. Just they wait kind of thing. And That's so beautiful. Yeah, it's so moving. It's so nice. Um, and she is taking him to a different doctor um, to try and get him different treatment. That is going to... That doctor wants to commit him to, to a facility and keep him away, like separate him from her because he doesn't think it's healthy. Um, and that's causing a lot of tension for them. Um at some point, uh, Richard Dalloway goes to lunch with a lady who may or may not like Clarissa. <laughs> okay. Uh, more on Lady Bruton to come. But he walks home from lunch, is kind of looking around at the world, thinking about his wife, going, I should go home and tell her I love her. I'm going to buy her flowers. I'm definitely going to tell her I love her. I love her so much. My life's kind of sad. I'm 60. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to buy her some flowers and tell her I love her. He gets home and he gives her the flowers and he doesn't tell her he loves her. <laughs> they just <sighs> There's just a moment where they go, yeah, you gave me some flowers. Thanks for these flowers. They, very, men have always been very in touch with their emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Good at communication. They and just the, yeah. understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, what else? The Septimus plot resolves after he thinks that the doctors are going to like kill his soul by taking him somewhere. Um, one of the doctors is attempting to see him uh, without Lucretia's consent. They always, they never actually talk to him. The one guy, Mr. Holmes, after uh, Septimus. Not that Mr. Holmes. No, a different Surely. Mr. Holmes. Okay. Um, after Septimus like first says he wants to take his life, he says, "You're in a funk, huh?" Like <laughs> it is a just funk. Yeah, it's comically is the technical awful. Ter- is that the medical term? Uh-huh. I was a not funk? expecting a character in a novel from 1922 or whatever to be like, "You're in a funk, huh?" It's like, come on. 
Um, and they never really talk to him about his treatment. They only talk to her, which on one hand makes sense, but they're also like ignoring the patient in front of them. Um, and so he takes his life. Um, and this doesn't intersect with Clarissa's plot at all until she does throw her big party, which based on the hours, I was not, I didn't know if we were going to get to the party because I don't recall us really getting to the party. In it's that like waiting novel. for Godoba a party. Yeah, I was waiting for something like to happen or not happen that would prevent me from seeing the party. But we do go to the party. There's a lot of people there. The prime minister shows up. There's lots of people. Dang, it's that's a of, good party. It, it's a, Well, it's an important quote-unquote party. That's what I meant when I said it's a good party. Yeah. Um, there's no dancing. There's not room for dancing. There's too many people there. Um, too many important people. Yeah. And it's kind of dizzying. The, the beginning of the book has a lot of people out in the street, a lot of different perspectives. The middle of the book slows down a little bit as we dive into these other characters and then the end during the party, there's like so many people at this party. And Wolf is just like, let me give you a paragraph from this person, a paragraph from this wacko person, and a paragraph from this person who judges everybody, and a paragraph from this person who's kind of simple but is rich. And it's like, all right, Ms. Dalloway's got to talk to all of them. And the big stick in her craw is that Peter is there. He did show up to the party. And, like, his eyes on her are, like, making her feel very self-conscious about the life that she's leading. Sure. And she finds out at the party that this young veteran in town has taken his own life. And I think the exact quote, if I have it, I'm not sure if I have it. She, It's something to the effect of, oh, no, death at my party, basically. Like... How like personified how death or somebody died? The idea that someone would come to her party and talk about death, I see, of all okay. things, mm-hmm. is kind of shocking to her. And then she considers it, and you start to see that like they are foils for one another. She tells herself a lot that she loves life, and he has kind of found this. He doesn't think that human nature would will allow him to continue living his life. And she sees that he has found some sort of... She tells herself, anyway, she doesn't know who this person is, that maybe he has found some sort of freedom from whatever confinement he was in. Uh, and in a different story, you might think that she would make a similar choice. Um, she does not. She goes back and rejoins the party, albeit kind of not sure how she feels about herself or you know there's a lot i think there's a lot of interpretation to what you think of her internal state by the end of the novel i mean if i had to write a book about every party that made me question how i feel about myself i would be a very prolific author (laughs) yeah so there's this there there's a something to the uh quotidian nature of the book that I think is what has made it work for so many people. Like the characters don't do anything. Like obviously some big things happen in the novel as I've talked about, but like a lot of the pages of the novel is people walking around London, (laughs) people eating some food together uh, and people go into one party. Yeah. And they're running errands for the party sometimes. And like, 
But while all of that is happening, they have these big thoughts about who they are, who they are in relationship to these people in their lives, uh, who they are in relationship to the country they live in, to the war that was just fought. Um, And so it's, I don't know, it's one of those things where maybe it's like here in the, in the year 2021, it doesn't sound as revolutionary to have this be this like internal monologue thing that characters are doing. I think Mm -hmm. it's probably progress. It's progressed to the point where it's kind of a thing you expect in a lot of literary fiction. Well, yeah, like a lot of the time you get something that is innovative at the time and then you just put it in the toolbox of of things that, you know, popular fiction or, or popular whatever is just like allowed to do because it's been done before and yeah. it just becomes another thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I found myself thinking of something about like just the people sitting around and like kind of sniping at each other without sniping at each other openly reminded me of some of the stuff that's going on in like Austin even, but this has like a much richer, more metaphorical internal description of all these people and we're like learning about their entire lives within their brains and minds Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um whereas like austin might just like give you a glance and talk about what they're yeah like you you might you might get a bunch of people dismissed because they're they are they have some weird deficiency or they're not worth taking seriously as a partner for marriage but you would actually then go to that person's internal monologue and find out that they had a rich inner life and, yeah. and thoughts about it, it's, those stories yeah. are still really much more motivated by action, even if they're not like, you know, it's not like fast and the furious action, but it's still like people doing things. Mm-hmm. You get what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to just like, I, mean, I would, I would <laughs> read Victorian novels that were kind of, I don't want to go all like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You don't. On everybody, but like, can we just, what do you get when you append Tokyo Drift to any given Victoria, like Wuthering Heights colon Tokyo Drift? (laughs) (laughs) What do you, what, what, what is that book? You know, start with the title and then work your way out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Lady Chatterley's Lover, Tokyo Drift. Yeah. Prometheus, Frankenstein or a modern Prometheus, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> to Jane, to Air. Ooh. <laughs> I, uh, my brain was going to two gentlemen, to Verona, but, you know, it works. <laughs> That's good, though. Um, we... I want to give a, a couple like snippets of some of the other women that we meet in this book that I've I've kind of glossed over in, in focusing on Clarissa and Peter and Septimus. Yeah, because we got that smooch, right? Can we talk more about that smooch? Okay, let's start with the smooch. So the smooch is Sally Seton, who uh, I think is like a childhood-ish friend of Clarissa's, grew up with her and, and Peter and Richard and the Bunch, I think. Um, spent a lot of time with Clarissa's family uh, away from her own. And he's like a little out of the mold. She smokes cigars. She's kind of brassy. She gets into hijinks and things. Um, And they strike up a friendship. Mostly kind of this felt like a trope that is now like I'm very familiar with. Again, how 
like fresh it was for different people at the time. I don't know, but she like excites Clarissa because she is not like openly flouting all of society's conventions, but is just like different and is willing to to step outside of the boundaries sometimes. Yeah, sure. And they strike up a friendship that Clarissa immediately recognizes is is both very deep and while it reminds her of the way that you might become interested in a man, she does say that it is in, it is incredibly different because it is also uh, built on like the solidarity that women in the society share instantly, which is a theme that crops up a few times between some of the characters. Sure. Uh, and it does, uh, in their younger years, it leads to them uh, alone at one point. Uh, I think... They're arranging flowers or something. Flowers crop up all over the book. I can't imagine why that might be a recurring theme. <laughs> and they do kiss briefly. And it is this like electric moment. Um, it does invite some jealousy between uh, Peter with Peter and that whole thing. So then Clarissa kind of shuts it down. And then obviously she moves on and marries Richard and the kind of all of that is left in the past. Mm-hmm. When we encounter Sally later in the book, who's gonna she's gonna come to the party. Uh, she's married, says at least once, maybe two or three times that she has five boys. Five, like I don't think she says five big boys, but the intonation <laughs> is like I've got five big boys. You're just thinking about that because I uploaded that video of Henry saying that he was a big boy to yeah, our, to our friend Slack it, recently. It, it's it's both that and it's the the like ways in which Wolf is is having Clarissa see oh this woman who I thought was who at the time felt very transgressive and stereotype breaking etc has has been domesticized in the way that this whole time I've been carrying her as like outside of that um so while that kiss is very important and I think is part of if Clarissa looked back on her life at all the things that she like diversion points where she could have not become Mrs. Dalloway, that's like one of them. Okay. Um, but she sees Sally and Sally's also a version of that here um, as well. There's the, this is the, there was one scene with this woman named Doris Kilman. Um, <laughs> that's who, a good name I, for somebody who kills men. <laughs> I don't I think it's supposed to be an anglic an anglicized. Mm, no, anglicized. that's good. That, that's good. You nailed it. An anglicized, anglicized. Yeah, uh, an anglicized version of a German name like Kielmann or something. Still sounds incredibly intense. Um, who came? I don't. I I don't remember if it's explicit in the book when she came to Europe or when her pa- family came to came to England. Excuse me, uh, but there's some allusions to like anti-German sentiment during World War One and how the Dalloways gave her work as like a teacher and stuff. And she is lower class though than Mrs. Dalloway, and sh- her daughter Elizabeth has struck up this really like powerful friendship with uh, Doris Kilman. And that is a Doris Kilman. I'm sorry. Wild. Um, that is a relationship that I definitely remember 
uh, having an analog in the hours. There's the like there's a prof- there's like an NYU professor or something who's this kind of like activist lesbian figure that throws a lot of things back in the Mrs. Dalloway uh, character in that novel as well. Mm-hmm. Like um, so here they have this kind of like we are two different types of women. Um, Kilman really doesn't like that Dalloway has never really wanted for anything, but they both share a love for Elizabeth and a, a hope hopes for Elizabeth's future. The conflict in as much as there's a conflict, cause it's this novel that we see is that like before the party, Doris wants to take Elizabeth to the stores. <laughs> like she's just going to take her out for the afternoon. Elizabeth's mm-hmm. like 17, I think. Um, and we get some internal monologues. Mrs. Kilman did not hate Mrs. Dalloway. Turning her large gooseberry-colored eyes upon Clarissa, observing her small pink face, her delicate body, her air of freshness and fashion, Miss Kilman felt fool, simpleton, you who have known neither sorrow nor pleasure, who have trifled your life away. And then Clarissa says, after she is like pondering for a page or two about how monstrous this woman is for like trying to steal her daughter away from her and clearly doesn't like her, Odd as it was, as Miss Kilman stood there and stand she did with the power and taciturnity of some prehistoric monster armored for primeval warfare, how second by second the idea of her diminished, how hatred, which was for ideas, not people, crumbled, how she lost her malignity, her size, became second by second merely Miss Kilman in a Macintosh, whom heaven knows Clarissa would have liked to help. At this dwindling of the monster, Clarissa laughed, saying goodbye, she laughed. And then later, Kilman's like, she laughed at me. I'm, oh, God. Like, <laughs> I do I do hate her <laughs> from the bottom of my heart. And it's this, like, all she did was say, I'm taking your daughter to the stores. Hey, remember the party later. And they stare at each other. And then she laughs and says goodbye, like, on the outside. And Wolf is on the inside being like, these people. Women hate each other. It's <laughs> WrestleMania in here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really good. There's the I just that stuck out stuck out to me. The other one is Lady Britain, who is another. I think she's slightly older than Clarissa. She regularly meets with folks like Richard and other men like Hugh Whitbread, and has them like <laughs> Whitbread. Has them write letters to the editor for her because she has opinions and wants to influence things in the world, but knows that like her stuff isn't always going to get published or she needs to like phrase things in ways that men in power will respond to. So she needs to talk to these like dudes over lunch. Um, And she asks Richard, how's Clarissa at one point? And up until this point, it seems pretty clear that Lady Britain does not care for Clarissa at all, at least as what we've been told. Um, When she said in her offhand way, how's Clarissa? Husbands had difficulty in persuading their wives and indeed, however devoted, were secretly doubtful themselves of her interest in women who often got in their husband's way, prevented them from accepting posts abroad, and had to be taken to the seaside in the middle of the session to recover from influenza. Nevertheless... Her inquiry, how's Clarissa, was known by women infallibly to be a signal from a well-wisher, from an almost silent companion, whose utterances, half a dozen perhaps in the course of a lifetime, signified recognition of some feminine comradeship which went beneath. Um, And it's just like, this is a smart lady writing this book. I don't know. Like There are (laughs) multiple times throughout this book where I was like, dang, 
you got him. You got him, Virginia. Like you nailed that person in like a paragraph, and now I like actually am able to hang my hat on some of the more challenging language because I have a very like clear signal of who this person is and what they're doing. I think that the book wouldn't have worked for me if there weren't those little like guideposts of character while while these people are like regretting and reminiscing and dreaming and things sure um that could all get really formless mm-hmm. um so yeah the the other stuff oh the last thing i'll 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 say is that and this is i'll take from the um from the foreword that uh this phrase endurance is now the heroic mode is this thing that the forward mentions as like we're out of world war one what do we do in the world now we there lots of depictions of people just like how am i going to live why do i live what do i contribute to society is society worth contributing to um and this so like, feels like a Tuesday to me. Like this is not, this doesn't well, seem. I, and that's what this book's about. This uh-huh. book is, she's like at one point, Miss Dalloway is trying to figure out what she's doing with her life. Why does she throw these parties? She recognizes that like, she's not super clever. She's not super well read. She is like attractive, but not um, like super like beautiful in a way that's going to like, change the world or make her some sort of fashion icon or or something like she's just a lady who is interested in people and people need a place where they can gather and feel seen and the book like gives that a, a lot of humanity but also undercuts it incredibly with this like and yet this type of person is is has no notion of who Septimus is and has no notion mm-hmm. of the people that are that are not living after the war or the broken people following the war and things like that. Um, so I I think for me the big tension of this book is like yes it's this wonderful remarkable novel of inner life that if you're interested in like what stream of consciousness writing can do for that and things like that, it's really, it's really powerful, but it is also what you said at the top of like, it is way more satirical and critical of a post-war Britain that is like leaving people to languish that is restricting social mobility for women. Um, Yeah. And it's all wrapped in this like modernist. I had to invent a new kind of novel to get this point across. <laughs> um, I don't know what's an errand that you've run recently, Andrew, where you had big thoughts while you were on the errand. I had big thoughts while I was on the errand, or just like thought, um, not even like. The, and when I mean big thoughts, I don't mean like you dreamed up a new type of quantum computer, but just like no, no, no. I understand. Um, I don't know. I've, I've, I have, I have gone through some life changes recently. Like whether you're talking about years or, or just like months, like I, I changed jobs recently. was a big thought. I, I, uh, you know, I've had a child and, and there are ongoing discussions about whether to do that again. Like Mm -hmm. you just, I, I, 
do most of my thinking about that stuff when I am on errands where my brain does not need to be 100% engaged in the errand that I am on the whole time. Yeah. I don't know that I have a specific example for it. I don't Do you have something? No, but I can... I, I don't know. It's weird. It's not maybe a, as good of an example. I have a lot of sense memory of the errands I was running leading up to my wedding and while that is a like higher stakes party than Mrs. Dalloway's, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of memory of just like what roads I was on and like what rental car I was driving and just the those individual b- blocks of travel and stuff were kind of whatever. I was just going through traffic, right? Mm-hmm. But it there was a lot of time during all of that process where you're like Oh, what I got. I'm thinking about the hundred people I'm going to see this week and all of the ways in which they've impacted my life and whether or not I want them like how I want not whether or not how I want them to be in my life moving forward. <laughs> I'm making cuts. At my wedding. That's, that's nightmarish. But there is a I mean, there there is a uh, there's a pizza place that every time I pass it. Uh, so when uh, when Susanna was in the hospital, uh, you know, in labor, mm. like she had she had to be her water broke and then she had to be induced and it was this whole thing. So so it took a while and I um, went home for a couple of hours that first night when we were just like kind of waiting for stuff to happen yeah. to take the car home so we wouldn't have to pay for parking in the parking garage and like check on the cat and like make sure that because we let we like we it was just a you Saturday left in a rush morning. I imagine yeah yeah like it was just a Saturday morning I was sitting and like playing Dragon Quest on my iPad uh-huh. thinking like well unless this is probably just another lazy Saturday unless something happens and then something happened <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I was walking back up to the, the hospital from home after I dropped the car off and everything and there's this pizza place where I stopped and I got a slice of pizza and every time I pass that pizza place like I go through that tr- not yeah. just memories of the entire like experience of of my like son being born but also the like that p- that pizza place is a is weirdly a like dividing line between my life before I was a parent and my life as a parent mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time I pass it I just think about that and so that there's a I don't know if that answers your question, but it like does. there's a thing. There's some heavy things. That is a heavy thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think about when I think when I, I don't know, and I'm just thinking about we're just rapping right now. I uh, got buffalo chicken pizza. There's a man, I would I would mess up a <laughs> buffalo chicken pizza right now. Mm. There's a cookie place whose emails I still haven't unsubscribed from because I got them for you. Ah uh, yes, week. I get that cookie places emails as well. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, I get those ads and I just think to myself about my friends and their kid. And that's yeah. nice. Um, I don't think about my regrets post war like the people in this book. But no. there are other things that trigger those thoughts. Yeah. And I think that for someone reading this book now in the year 2021, after uh, or during a big series of lockdowns and life and world changes and here in america we have purportedly just ended a war that went on for very too long um we'll see 
just like I don't know. I I think a lot of that stuff will hit, and it probably has hit generations of readers because those things and those like big societal changes rippling into your everyday that never goes away. So that's that's the closest thing to a smart thing I think I've said today. Sure. Best. I still I I brought that smart thing that other person said earlier, so I'm still feeling pretty good about yeah, it. Yeah, you should. It was a good smart thing that you brought. Yeah, um, thanks. If other folks at home think Andrew, thanks for listening to me tell you about this book. Of course. And always. uh let's get out of here. That if okay, folks at home want to tell us about the cookie places that give them memories, um and emails. <laughs> Send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Tell us more at overduepod. Thanks to Emily, Sean, Katie, Psyduck, Rachel, uh, Salamander. That's what my notes say. <laughs> Rebecca? <laughs> that that seems more. That's what my notes say. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. We, we love to talk to you throughout the week. Um, thanks, Nick Larandis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com, which is where we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Uh, I hear from people on book Twitter that because of supply chain stuff, like if you intend to buy physical books as gifts for people uh, for this holiday season, you should be thinking about buying them now. Uh, So if you go to the links on our website, those take you to bookshop.org, which... Uh, we get a small cut of that, but most of it goes to your local independent bookstore and then you get a book. So think about that. Why don't you? Patreon.com slash overdue pod is our Patreon page. Help support the show by both of us fun, fancy computer parts that help us export audio really fast. Yeah. <laughs> and also like books and hosting and all the, you know, the, the things that help us make the show happen every week. Um, Next week, Craig, you so we, we have a little bit of scheduling stuff happening yeah. because we've got a guest episode happening at the end of the month where we're going to read uh, the book Aragon with Natasha from the Unspoiled podcast. And yeah. I've, I've read like the first quarter of that. And man, ugh, give me this fantasy stuff. Oh, wow. But it, what are you reading whoa. next week? I'm whoa. Give I'm, me this tropey fantasy stuff. I love it. Okay, great. Awesome. Uh, I read the boxcar children for next week. We'll talk about it. Uh, they're chi- children live in a box car in the twenties. <laughs> Can't wait! Can't wait to talk about somebody else's experience of the nineteen twenties. <laughs> that was not on purpose. We just lucked into it. It's a theme. It's a roaring twenties September here on Overdue. And then we're gonna put together a Spooktober schedule for Spooktober twenty twenty one. Yeah, keep your eyes we'll peeled. That. Yeah, we'll get that up on the website and our social feeds ASAP. That's all I got, Andrew. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show, as always. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.